interest rate spike. I think there's a huge psychological component. What the biggest jump in 20 years means for B.C. borrowers. Crackdown on protesters. They decided to tow our cars, originally telling us that it was uh, just going to be held for seven days. What police are doing to discourage traffic-blocking demonstrations. And B.C. Ferries floats a warning about long weekend travel. You're watching Global B.C. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is on assignment tonight. The cost of borrowing is going up again by half a percentage point. The biggest spike in the key interest rate we've seen in more than 20 years. And as John Waugh reports, it's adding to the pressure on Canadian families carrying a lot of debt. Something many Canadians have in common, the weight of crippling debt. It might be a car loan that's tied to prime rate, might be a home equity uh, loan tied to prime rate, uh, you name it. Well, their costs just went up. That's because the Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate a half point to 1%, the highest single jump in more than two decades. Our policy interest rate is our primary tool to keep the economy in balance and bring inflation back to the 2% target. It's also a great way to spike the blood pressure of anyone by loan to income ratio which is pretty much a way of life here in B.C. We've got a large component who couldn't afford the inflationary pressure in the first place, can't afford to see higher interest rates at the same time. Let's take $100,000 on a home equity line of credit. At a rate of 3%, paying off the interest alone is $250 a month. A half-point hike to 3.5% increases those payments to $292. If there's another jump in June to 4%, you'll have to find a way to scrounge up. 333 bucks a month. So many Canadians are facing challenges with affordability and we are very alive to that. Well at least the pain of rising interest rates will offer immediate relief from high inflation. Experts say think again. I need food, I need shelter and I'm going to be impacted by gasoline prices. Well raising interest rates doesn't impact any of that. In fact Campbell says there are plenty of factors like Russia's invasion of Ukraine and global supply chain issues that lie outside the inflation interest rate equation. The major impact isn't going to be felt by raising interest rates because so many of the things are outside of our control. And we can't forget about the added frustration this brings to the housing market. While well, some predict higher mortgage rates will lead to a price correction until that happens, first-time home buyers are seeing a hit to their purchasing power. I think something is going to have to give. Either rates will have to come off a bit, um, or, or prices are going to have to ease up a bit. Right now, Canadians are being warned to find ways to financially hang on. There are more interest rate hikes on the horizon. John Hua, Global News. Two parallel investigations are underway right now into that terrible accident in Vancouver during the Tuesday evening commute. One person died when a tree came crashing down onto a car near Marine Way and River District Crossing. Both Vancouver Police and the Vancouver Park Board are trying to discover why the tree fell. The Park Board says it can't provide any further details at this point. Police are looking for any dash camera footage from the area around that time. A man found guilty of manslaughter in the shooting death of a 21-year-old Surrey man two years ago is going to jail. A judge handed Robert Tomlenovich a sentence of 12 years behind bars, minus time already served. Tom Lenovich was found guilty of manslaughter in the death of Pritpal Singh, 
who was fatally shot on the front lawn of his home back in April of 2020. The shooting was originally believed to be random. Back in January, Tom Lenovich was found not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of the lesser crime of manslaughter and robbery with a firearm. IHIT says it hopes the outcome provides some closure for Singh's family. An American man has been arrested after he allegedly crossed the Peace Arch border into Canada with loaded handguns and a stun gun. RCMP say the U.S. citizen allegedly entered the country illegally on March 31st. He then reportedly joined a Canadian woman waiting in a taxi before officers arrested the man under the Customs Act and found three loaded handguns and the stun gun. The man is facing several charges, including possession of a restricted firearm with ammunition, smuggling, and failure to comply to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. RCMP continue to investigate. A warning from Richmond RCMP tonight. Cryptocurrency scammers have taken $2.6 million from victims this year alone. In the first four months of 2022, RCMP say they've already received 22 reports of cryptocurrency fraud. One victim was reportedly scammed out of more than half a million dollars. Richmond RCMP say there are three primary scams going around. Fake investment schemes, romance scams, or individuals posing as government representatives. If anyone ever claiming from, to be from the government agency asks for Bitcoin or gift cards as payment, you're told to hang up immediately. Anti-logging groups have been busy blocking traffic and highways and bridges several times over the last few months. But now, the B.C. government is removing one of the demonstrators' most effective roadblocks. As Richard Zussman reports, they're starting to seize the protesters' vehicles. They are snarling traffic and triggering frustration. All in an attempt to stop the province from allowing old-growth forest logging. But the action has come with unintended consequences. Last Monday, they, they decided to tow our cars, originally telling us that it was uh, just going to be held for seven days, but then we found out that uh, they were actually forfeited. So the, the government gets full uh, ownership of the vehicles now. Those cars were blocking three lanes of Highway 1 traffic. Police towing them using the province's civil forfeiture rules, allowing a seizure of assets as part of a valid investigation. If there's no way that you could get to the place where the protest is taking place and block roadways and and do all of these things without having access to the vehicle, or the vehicle facilitates that in the sense that it makes it easier, then civil forfeiture laws could apply. But lawyer Kyla Lee quick to point out, using civil forfeiture laws are a slippery slope giving increasingly more power to police. It's meant to prevent further crime from occurring. It's not meant to be a restriction that's used on people's civil liberties. And as much as we may want to say this protest activity is illegal and it's unlawful to block roadways, at the same time, protesting, unlike other criminal activity for which civil forfeiture laws were designed, is a constitutionally protected right. Police could have used civil forfeiture to seize vehicles used in COVID-19 protests here at the B.C. Legislature as well. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth unavailable for comment Wednesday to speak about the latest use of civil forfeiture. Hopefully, this, back, this will cause a backfire effect that people will see the injustice and will 
be mobilized to act. The protesters are changing their strategy. Instead of blocking highways with cars, they instead run on the road and sit down, hoping their message breaks through the sound of these honking horns. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. BC health officials will be releasing their now weekly COVID-19 data tomorrow as we watch what's happening around the world. And for more, let's bring in our Keith Baldry. Keith, let's begin with what to expect from Thursday's numbers. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in this. We've gotten used to getting daily numbers in terms of cases, ICUs, hospitalizations, and deaths. We haven't had those numbers for a week now, so a lot of interest, I think, is going to be paid to the Center for Disease Control website at 1 o'clock tomorrow when it's posted. Here's what to look for in terms of the key indicators. In terms of, uh, of cases, will they continue to climb as they did the last reporting period? 1,706 was last week. Will it go up? Likely so, because the, the positivity rate continues to climb. Will hospital admissions continue to to drop a number as they did last week. These are people going to hospital uh, because they're feeling so sick from COVID-19. And deaths are likely to increase, I'm told, because there's a new reporting system and a data adjustment we're going to see tomorrow, Chris. So with the infection rate on the rise, we expect the number of cases to go up. But we're not seeing a severe illness associated with the BA2 variant. And that means the hospital admissions, people who are so sick from COVID-19 that they need to be hospitalized, hopefully that number goes down. As I say, that'll be at 1 o'clock tomorrow. Obviously, people are going to be comparing those numbers to what we see going on globally. What's happening around the world right now? Yeah, we passed a very historic and important milestone yesterday, so I thought it would be appropriate to take a look at some far-flung uh, uh, locations. First of all, on a worldwide basis, we hit our 500 millionth case mark uh, yesterday. And, of course, the number of cases is far greater than that because many countries don't do any testing. Uh, we're averaging 3,800 people dying a day. The good news is that's down 23% uh, by 23% over the last two weeks. But cases continue to surge in Europe, northeast United States, Ontario, and Quebec also seeing big cases, also in fact, uh, uh, wastewater surveillance coming back with high numbers. So again, we're not uh, in, we're in the sixth wave, but we don't seem to be in the same way uh, other jurisdictions are. The sixth wave, just like other waves, it seems to be behaving differently in different jurisdictions. It'll be interesting whether BC starts to experience what Ontario and Quebec are, have been experiencing the last few weeks, which is a big spike in hospitalizations and cases. We usually lag behind those provinces, but right now we don't seem to be matching them in terms of infections. Uh, Certainly the infection rate in Ontario is 18%. It's about 8% in B.C. All right. We'll be fascinated to see what they release. 1 p.m. tomorrow. Look forward to your yep. coverage then. Thanks, Keith. Residents of Vancouver will not get to vote on whether the city should back a bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics. As Ahmad Agahi reports, an unusual move by Vancouver Council could turn the Indigenous-led bid into a major civic election issue. That's it for questions from Council. I'm calling for a seconder. It's not unheard of, but certainly uncommon. No seconder. So thank you very much, uh, Council. We're going to move to item five. That elected officials at City Hall turned down a public debate on a topic that just about everyone else has an opinion on. Vancouver's second Winter Olympic bid. At the heart of it, it's a democratic process. The people needed to have a say. That's Vancouver City Councillor Colleen Hardwick, almost simultaneous to announcing she's running for mayor in the fall. Her intentions to encourage a plebiscite came to light. The purpose of the motion was to put the question on the ballot in October of whether or not Vancouver should 
pursue a bid for the Olympics in 2030. And while the motion failed to even be considered in council, perhaps it has separated Hardwick from the pack on a contentious election issue. You look at the other councillors and it's almost as if they're lining themselves as the pro-Olympic parties. This, as research goes, says support for another bid has dropped throughout the pandemic and campaigns are likely to know this. And it ultimately really helps Colleen Hardwick to say I'm the only one who is supposed to essentially signing this black check because we don't even know how much money was spent in the previous Olympics. I think this is a big part of reconciliation. But what separates this potential bid from 2010 is that it's led by the Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Lilwat First Nations. I understand that, you know, that they want to engage the citizens of Vancouver, but I think it's, there's a proper time and place for that. The nations are deep into a feasibility study. Our communities were quite upset that Hardwick had never talked to us prior to before tabling the motion. Chief Wayne Sparrow adds the best time for public feedback would be after the study, as a final decision to submit the bid is being made. Amadagahi, Global News. BC Ferries is warning customers about long weekend travel, the worker shortage that could spoil sailings just when you need them the most. That's next on the News Hour. Blast from the past, the story behind the last remaining nuclear weapon free zone sign and the protesters that inspired it later. And how the hunt for the New York subway shooting suspect ended coming up as well. But right now, the Eastern Long Weekend is always busy for B.C. ferries, but crew shortages are expected to complicate matters even further. While extra sailings have been added, sailings could also be cancelled at a moment's notice. Kylie Stanton shows us why. We know the drill. Pack the car, race to the terminal, line up and hope to make the boat. But with the ongoing crew shortages on board, there's no guarantee it'll be smooth sailing. We have seen some occasions, isolated incidents over the past month or so, where we do have to cancel service on short notice due to crew illness. BC Ferries is warning its customers to be prepared ahead of this long weekend, what typically marks the beginning of the busy travel season. And this year could be a test in patience, not only for passengers, but also the employees doing their best to get people where they want to go. I think it's going to be a difficult summer. And uh, frankly, that, that puts additional stress on my members, uh, who are the frontline folks. The problem is not unique to BC Ferries. In fact, there is a worldwide shortage of seafarers, only exacerbated by the pandemic, and now an aging workforce. And, and they are retiring, uh, and uh, there's going to be leaving critical gaps in, in our, in our uh, manpower situation. Nelson says addressing the issues could take many forms, from government training programs to simply getting the word out. But when it comes to BC Ferries, the union says, in the short term, it's all about compensation. Does BC Ferries pay enough? I don't think so. They can go to another marine organization, another marine operator, and they'd be making, you know, probably twenty dollars to $30,000 a year more, which is pretty hard to say no to. Well, we feel that we offer a competitive uh, package and that includes wage and benefits as well as a pension, which is very attractive to a lot of people. But until they're hired, trained and certified, the schedule could remain in flux. So probably best to add one more item to the drill. Know before you go. Make sure you do check our website before you head out and ensure that there haven't been any adjustments to the sailing times for the uh, particular sailing that you'd like to catch. Kylie Stanton, Global News.
And just ahead, turning your car into cash. Astounding. There's, there's no precedent for it in leasing. Why your leased vehicle might be worth a lot more than you expected. And the spring blizzard that paralyzed parts of the prairies. The tow truck is now on scene to a stalled truck on the Surrey side of the Portman Bridge. Eastbound Highway 1, just east of the bridge deck, about halfway up Johnson Hill. Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $6 million, plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Portman Bridge. This May, join me for the BC Cancer Foundation's Workout to Conquer Cancer. Sign up on your own or as a team. And let's move every day this May and help change cancer outcomes. Register today at workouttoconquercancer.ca. Ongoing supply chain issues continue to cause inventory shortages for both new and used vehicles. So if you are near the end of your auto lease, don't hand the keys back to the dealer too quickly. Andrew is here to show us why in Consumer Matters. And Thanks, Chris. These are certainly unusual times. The vehicle you leased three or four years ago is likely worth much more now, which means if your lease is about to end, there are some options you may want to consider. The vehicle you leased a few years ago could be worth thousands more today. Astounding. There's, there's no precedent for it in leasing. Supply chain disruptions, semiconductor chip shortages, and the pandemic have created a perfect storm, putting those leasing a vehicle in the driver's seat. You drive that car up a lot, and it all of a sudden gains value because you're the person with that one car that everybody wants and can't get from the dealership. Which means in most cases, the dealership wants your lease vehicle back. They're really trying to gain that inventory and resell that vehicle at an even higher price than them than what they're going to offer for you. So before you hand over the keys of a lease vehicle, consider your options. For starters, determine the market value of your vehicle. Check to see if your car's current value is above its residual value, your car's predetermined value at the end of your lease. Is it worth more now? We're seeing if people are have anywhere between two and eight or ten thousand dollars of equity at the end of a lease. Also, find out the current payout on your lease. Consider if your lease vehicle has gone over mileage or has accumulated any significant cosmetic damage. However, in today's climate, many dealers are absorbing that expense. If you do return your lease vehicle to the dealer, consider this. I would see if the dealer can kick back any of that value to you if you're threatening to buy it out. And then you can use that as a down payment on your next lease to hopefully get you a... um, um, and less expensive lease price. Um, and then you get, you know, that brand new vehicle again. Thinking of buying out your lease and selling it privately? Call your credit or leasing company and check your lease contract. Others will still require that you return to a dealer and some dealers will stick you with an admin charge. The nonprofit Automobile Protection Association says the service charge to buy out a lease can vary significantly between dealerships selling the same brand. So shop around. As for how long the consumer might have leverage in today's market, the Automobile Protection Association says we could see this continue for the next 15 months. It also expects prices on used vehicles will continue to climb because supply is so restricted. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks very much and good information. Up next, the subway shooting suspect in custody. The bizarre tip police received that helped find him. And the effective COVID treatment many patients simply can't get. 
Good evening. Just waiting for a tow truck to arrive on scene to this stalled vehicle in Burnaby, eastbound on Canada Way, just before Burris in the middle lane. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One. I have a stall in Burnaby. New York police found and arrested their suspect in the Brooklyn subway shooting. 62-year-old Frank James was taken into custody this afternoon in Manhattan after a call to the police tip line that appears to have come from James himself. He was named a suspect in the terrifying incident after investigators found keys to a U-Haul van near the scene, which they believed to be connected to the shooting. Ten people suffered bullet wounds and went to hospital. Fortunately, all of the victims are expected to be okay. We hope this arrest brings some solace to the victims and the people of the city of New York. We used every resource at our disposal to gather and process significant evidence that directly links Mr. James to the shooting. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. There are growing concerns that a key Ukrainian city barely remaining in the country's hands could be overtaken by Russian forces in a matter of days. It's a critical piece of the war strategy for Moscow, one Ukraine's defense agency is desperate to hold on to with a passionate appeal for more Western military aid. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. Without food, water, even power, those in Mariupol, by choice or force, are quickly running out of time. The city's mayor says there are still over 100,000 people waiting for evacuation. Humanitarian corridors on Wednesday were shut down. It's a deliberate attempt to force the city to its knees. One Moscow claims is working. Its defense ministry alleging more than 1,000 Ukrainian troops and officers laid down arms. Ukraine denies any surrender, one that would make it easier for Russia to connect rebel-backed regions. Now, there are reports one of Ukraine's last remaining battalions in Mariupol has instead joined forces with its ultra-nationalistic defense branch. But with no observers on the ground, Confirming anything is impossible at best. But it's not stopping the West from calling out the atrocities. Yes, I call it genocide. That's the U.S. president's view. And while official processes make that determination, it is shared sentiment among allies. I think it's absolutely right that more and more people be talking uh, and using the word genocide uh, in terms of what uh, Russia is doing. Russia calls the word inappropriate, even as a new report details incidents that could constitute war crimes, including more use of cluster munitions and torture. And it's not just investigators seeing things up close. No, it's even difficult to express in words how cruel is this regime. Baltic leaders were the latest to visit war-torn regions near Kyiv, as Ukraine's president begs for more weapons. Freedom must be armed better than tyranny. On Wednesday, the U.S. announced an additional $800 million in weapons, ammunition and other security assistance, including additional helicopters, providing Ukraine with more of a fighting chance. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. And B.C. has launched a new website to help Ukrainians arriving in the province navigate their new lives here. The new web portal, Welcoming Ukraine, 
will provide information for newcomers to access housing, social services, and employment opportunities. There's also a new multilingual 24-hour support line for displaced Ukrainians that they can call, and it will connect them to free social supports and programs available. Officials say these new supports will help streamline the process for newcomers. Uh, settlement agencies and communities know how to help people settle in those communities best. Sometimes it's the formal things like language training. Sometimes it's about teaching people how to ride the bus in their new neighborhood, figuring out how to sign their kids up for the local soccer team, providing childcare opportunities while their parents are taking language training classes. It's going to help people find jobs. It's going to include services for women, for seniors, for youth, for the LGBTQ2 community. British Columbians can also sign up as volunteers to house refugees, offer employment or donate. Since March 30th, there have been more than 41,000 Ukrainians who've been approved to come to Canada through the emergency travel program. In Health Matters, after two years of... Oh, we're not in Health Matters yet. Sorry about that. After two years of hard work and one day before Vesaki, the South Asian Canadian Legacy Project has officially unveiled a series of online and archival resources that will help shed light on that community's contributions. South Asian Canadian Legacy Project is an incredible project to capture the history and the contributions of South Asian Canadians. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, one of those celebrating the achievement of the South Asian Studies Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley. The Institute has been collecting and digitizing archival material and producing educational resources for classrooms, along with developing a traveling exhibit that will set up in schools, civic centers, and museums around the province. Up to now, our history has been forgotten or omitted or erased in Canadian, the Canadian record. This is a moment for us to say our history matters. The shade of this tree is going to be experienced by not just our children, but our children's children. And that's a really beautiful concept. Funding for the project was provided by the provincial government and the Abbotsford Community Foundation. Now we've got Health Matters. And a pill used to treat COVID-19 is back in the spotlight with the arrival of Canada's sixth wave. Experts say Paxlovid is a standout tool for helping high-risk patients recover from the infection. But as Jamie Maraca reports, the patchwork distribution system is preventing some patients from getting it when they really need it. Right, so here's your medication. Dr. Sohal Goyle is suddenly slammed with demand for the COVID-19 antiviral treatment Paxlovid. As of Monday evening, um, we are getting a lot of referrals. We will not be able to accommodate everyone that is referred to us. The rush follows Ontario expanding eligibility for the pill and increasing the number of locations where it can be accessed. But Goyle still worries high-risk patients are being missed. It's accessing testing and realizing that you actually have COVID. And it's not just an Ontario issue. The federal government has distributed 150,000 courses of the drug, but each province has a different set of rules and regulations for its use. My message to all Canadians who may be in high risk, such as the immunocompromised, figure out in your community right now how you can get access to that medication should you need it. In Alberta, where qualifications for access were updated last week, experts say leaving it up to the individual poses a risk. That's because Paxlovid has to be taken within five days from the onset of symptoms to be effective. People who are high risk um, 
have been able to book a PCR test to document infection. And then if you test positive on a PCR test, instructions on how to access available therapies has been provided with that result. But I think that's been below the radar for a lot of people. Health Canada says it will work with jurisdictions to mobilize the drug, something that will take time, leaving Canadians battling COVID now to figure out the system for themselves. Jamie Morocker, Global News, Toronto. Still ahead, a quirky relic of the Cold War. You know, we always understood that it was it was somewhat of a symbolic gesture. What inspired the movement to declare Vancouver a nuclear weapons-free zone? And the small BC town still facing big challenges to recover from flooding. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. It's been five months already since historic flooding devastated the town of Princeton, and recovery efforts are far from over. The mayor says he's hopeful the community will receive some much-needed funding to complete some big repairs. Taya Fast reports. Six months after an atmospheric river event tore through downtown Princeton, recovery efforts are far from over. I've seen a community at its worst. Yeah. And would you say this, is, this community is at its worst? That's right, yeah. And it always hits the most vulnerable people. The Mennonite Disaster Service is one of the many volunteer organizations that have been helping residents rebuild, as many people have still been unable to return home. Since we started in December 6th, and every week we get new people that come from across Canada, and have come here to work. The town of Princeton remains under a boil water advisory, which Mayor Spencer Coyne says there is no timeline as to when that will be lifted. That's going to have to remain in place probably until we get a new new well system. The engineers have come up with the pricing, they've come up with a plan. We just need the approvals on the funding so that we can move forward on that. The town is in desperate need of funding in order to complete several infrastructure repairs. Road repairs, uh, water lines, uh, the directional drilling that we had to do to get the, the water lines in place, um, sewer, you know, sewer upgrade or sewer repairs. Uh, all that stuff, um, hopefully our, our wells as well. On Monday, Coyne, the mayor of Merritt, and the mayor of Abbotsford, along with several other community representatives, met with the ministry to discuss funding. We're optimistic that we're going to see some funding, um, not just through DFA, but through provincial government and, and whatnot soon. Um, things are moving a little bit faster than they have been in the past. The town has applied for disaster financial assistance and the DFA team is now in the community to review the application. There was about 30 of us on the, on the, in the meeting and we all met with um, Minister Blair and Minister Farnworth about, about funding and about you know, what we needed and, and that was a consistent uh, that was a very consistent message from all of us, is that the funding needed to come through faster. Coyne says the town originally applied for $10 million in assistance, but that number has quickly doubled. So our number originally was going to be 10, around $10 million. We're up to $21 million now. Now that the spring's come, we've found more things that are broken and, and having issues. TFS Global News, Princeton. Tough to see the people of Princeton struggle like that for sure. and Can't believe it's been five months since that event. We'll bring in Christy now, talk about the weather that we're facing as we approach a long weekend here. Mm -hmm. Christy, is it going to warm up a little bit? 
Well, we had a tad of a warm-up over the last 24 hours. Chris, we only saw highs of about 7 or 8 degrees yesterday, and today we're at about 10. We're expecting that over the next couple of days. So we're still below seasonal, but at least a little warmer uh, compared to what we saw yesterday. Here's a quick look at those daytime highs. Uh, so 10, 11 degrees across lower mainland, a little warmer in Squ uh, Squamish and out towards Agassiz, but it's still very cold in through the far north. Uh, areas like Prince George did not climb above the freezing mark yesterday, so finally making their way up above that. But we still had some lingering instability today, and uh, it's the same sort of pattern that we saw yesterday, but yesterday was really that intensity. Today, we certainly saw some more sunshine in the mix, but you can see some lightning strikes across the west coast of Vancouver Island. We had reports of snow grains or a little bit of snow in through uh, Seashelt. Here in North Vancouver, we saw that along with isolated showers. This is what it looked like looking out from Sumas Prairie towards that. And that's the typical pattern that we've seen, some blue sky and then these downpours of rain. But they certainly haven't been as intense as what we have experienced. So things will settle down overnight. It is going to be cold. Frosty start to the day tomorrow with some sunshine, a low of zero degrees. But again, tomorrow afternoon, still some lingering instability. So a slight chance of showers. I wouldn't rule out a slight chance of a bit of snow grains or wet flurries. Uh, and that especially is the case across the west coast of Vancouver Island, similar to what you saw today with that risk of thunderstorms. Meanwhile, not a lot of action in through the interior once again. There have been a few snow squalls. Yesterday they saw them, but it's very isolated in nature. And that will be the case across the south coast again tomorrow. Friday not looking too bad. I've kept in a slight chance of showers right through the weekend. But overall, the next couple of days are looking fairly nice. But as you can see, we don't climb up back to near freezing or back to near average temperatures until Monday when the rain makes a comeback. But at least Easter looks dry, so hopefully kids can get out and do an Easter egg hunt. Tonight's Central Windows weather window comes to you from Kitimat. Kelly Marsh said they were out all night waiting for the aurora. This was uh, two nights ago, and she said it finally came. And what a spectacular shot you got, Kelly. Thanks for sharing. Well worth the wait. Well done. We applaud that dedication. Thanks very much, Christy. And even with some wet flurries in the forecast, here's proof we've got nothing to complain about out here on the West Coast. Heavy snow and strong winds are hitting Manitoba in what could be the worst spring blizzard in two decades. You can make it out and about. It's not really that bad, right? Still, schools were closed for the day in many parts of the province. Highways and roads are also shut down, and most flights at Winnipeg's International Airport are cancelled. The storm's so severe, it even led the NHL to postpone tonight's game between the Jets and visiting Seattle Kraken. It's also a mess in southeastern Saskatchewan, where up to 50 centimeters of snow is expected to fall by the end of the day, along with some gusting winds. Residents were told to not even try to leave the house this morning. Schools have been canceled for the rest of the week. Plows are working overtime to try and make sure roads are cleared for emergency vehicles. Unbelievable. All right, we'll bring in Squire now. Bit of a what hiccup in the it's NHL. Like, it's like Narnia back there. It is, isn't it? Perpetual winter. Crazy. Um, I'll be happy to get out of it, too. Yes, the uh, Canucks did win last night, and that win kept their uh, playoff hopes alive. There is a lot of anxiety, but um, Bruce Boudreaux wants his players, despite all of that, to enjoy the ride. Well, I hope they're enjoying it. I'm having fun after the game. Look, this is good. They didn't gain any ground on those at whole playoff spots last night, but they didn't lose any ground either. Always a silver lining. Also tonight, Cold War flashback. Squire talks to a local politician who once faced down a U.S. aircraft carrier.
You can't win them all, uh, but it's nice when you don't lose, too, right? That's true. It would help if others helped you. Mm-hmm. But uh, Canucks should have helped themselves earlier in the year, I guess. They wouldn't be in this predicament. But anyways, it wasn't a perfect night last night, but that 5-4 overtime win against Vegas certainly kept the Canucks from sinking any further. They are still in the same spot, six points from a playoff position with eight games now to go. But a loss of the Golden Knights would have been devastating, especially with the teams they're chasing, Dallas and L.A., winning yesterday. At least the Canucks are keeping everybody, and I mean everybody in Canucks Nation, on the edge of their seats, including the head coach. How's the heart rate? <laughs> I was telling the guys in there, have you ever seen the old Bugs Bunny cartoons where uh, like when he sees a, a, another bunny that's really pretty and the red heart keeps coming out of your chest? I felt like that in the third period. Yes, the Canucks did blow a 4-2 lead in the third period and gave Vegas a point, but at least Vancouver got the extra point in overtime. I think that we always thought we could do it, and uh, I mean, we got eight games left to see if we can, you know, take it one day at a time, but um, it's exciting, you know, we wanted to be in it, and uh, it's hard to be in it with the way we started, but... Um, you know, when we have Dermer playing the way he's playing and some other guys stepping up too, it's huge. We didn't gain a point on anybody today. Everybody seems to want to win for now, but uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll just keep pushing until there's no more room to push. See what happens. Whitecaps signed Christian Dahomey to a new two-year contract extension. They actually have a club option on the year 2025 as well. Since arriving in 2020... He has the most goals on the Whitecaps with 16. He also has 11 assists. He's appeared in 64 games. The guy is uh, very resilient health-wise and very versatile on the field. Can play wing back, can play forward. It's a good, it's a good signing for Vancouver. All right, uh, Benfica, Liverpool. This is Champions League quarterfinals. And uh, Liverpool with Roberto Firmino uh, getting two in this game. There's one of them. They advanced to the next round of Champions League, as did Manchester City. The Canadian Premier Soccer League will have as many teams next year as the CFL does. There will be nine. And the ninth team will be in the Fraser Valley, which has really been growing its place in pro and amateur sports in this country. Champions of the Canadian Premier League, Pacific FC! Come the 2023 season, the Canadian Premier League will add a second BC franchise to compete alongside Langford's championship-winning Pacific FC. The yet-to-be-named Vancouver side becoming the CPL's ninth franchise and will call the township of Langley home. Everybody knows the growth of the Valley. Uh, not only just the growth population, the soccer community growth. Um, Location-wise, I mean, to me, when I say world-class facility, I truly believe this Langley event is world-class. It's set up for events. They do a fantastic job already with the other sports here. The plan is to make Willoughby Community Park into a small, intimate stadium. It already has brand-new FIFA-quality turf. Next up is finalizing the stands, initial indications being seating capacity of anywhere from five to 8,000 seats. It's about creating a, a full, loud stadium. It doesn't have to be large, but, you know, roof stadium, small, you know, under 10,000 seats is, is all you need. And you don't need a huge stadium to be successful. And it's, it's, it's much like in Europe and, you know, in England and Germany and Italy, these small venues, those are the best venues. Those are the best atmosphere. So we're really excited to create that really exciting atmosphere within the stadium. 
When it was founded back in 2017, the Canadian Premier League's goal was to become a coast-to-coast -coast development league for Canada's up-and-coming young talent. Five years later, it's gone from seven to as soon to be 11 teams as Saskatchewan and Windsor get added into the CPL landscape. You know, our job was to fill that gap in the pathway, keep Canadians in Canada. Uh, we've had six players just, you know, taken on to Canada's U-20 uh, development camp. Uh, so it's early days, but we're seeing a lot of interest, uh, and, and I think we're on the right path. Blankowski, long looping ball for friend, friend above everyone! I want to see more Canadians have the opportunity. I didn't have the opportunity. I want to see for the younger generation. I knew this country was a soccer country. We weren't rele relevant even in our own country. And we needed our own league to do that. We needed a league, a platform for these young kids to, to play at, to eventually move on. The country needs its own domestic league to grow the game and to be relevant around the world. There's a brave Blue Jays fan wearing his Vladdy Guerrero Jr. uniform at Yankee Stadium. Good thing he has because uh, Vladdy's putting on the show. That is ruled a home run. Yeah, yep, that's over the wall. So, give him the Barrio jacket. That's one home run. Here's his second one. That's, that's a laser beam. He actually has another one in this game. I didn't have time to show you it. So there's two of the three, and it's 6-3 Toronto in the eighth inning. There you go. I would have given you time. I appreciate the, that. I'm not the boss. That's true, you aren't. But All when right. you are... Someday. Thousands drive by it every day, but very few know why the sign declaring Vancouver a nuclear weapons-free zone is there. So Squire's going to show us next. All right, Kamal Kuramali is standing by with details on what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Kamal. Chris, a valuable piece of art has been stolen from the BC Children's Hospital just a few weeks after being installed. The bronze sculpture was brought in late February and placed outside the hospital's front entrance on Oak Street. It's part of an outdoor sanctuary for patients, but was discovered missing just a few days ago. We'll have reaction from the artist and the plea from the hospital. These stories and more on Global News at 11. Chris. All right. Hopefully they can find it before it gets melted down. I appreciate that. Kamal, we'll see you tonight. Now, Squire's here with a... I'm always fascinated to figure out how you find the topics you want to do stories Sometimes on. it's just a matter of driving around town. Yeah. And seeing what you see, which is kind of what happened in this case. I won't give it away yet because it's in the story, but it's... Let me just put it this way. Sometimes it's good if you're at a red light to just kind of look around, see what's what. At the corner of Broadway and Boundary Road in Vancouver is this curious sign. It's been there for almost 40 years. There used to be more of these around Vancouver. It's very much a sign of the time it came from, the early 1980s, when Vancouver was at the forefront of the peace movement. And Libby Davies was very much a part of it. You know, we always understood that it was... It was somewhat of a symbolic gesture, but it was a really important demonstration of, the, um, of what people were feeling at the time. What they were feeling was fear of being caught in the crossfire of a nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And of course, it's cities that were the target of nuclear weapons. And it was cities around the world that were leading um, a globalized peace movement. 
Vancouver's peace movement was led by a group called End the Arms Race, which would stage massive marches for peace. It became so uh, popular and mainstream. We would have cops wearing, you know, badges saying peace. We would have the mayor, we would have, you know, city councillors. Like, everybody wanted to be there. In 1989, Libby and some other protesters put the words on the sign into action by swimming out to the USS Independence, which had docked in Vancouver. Vancouver is a nuclear weaponry zone. You have nuclear bombs on board. We ask you to leave our harbor right now. And every time I came up for a breath, I could see the sailors above me uh, hurling insults. Um, and, you know, it was to make a point that, that um, we didn't mind the the USS independence being in the port, but we just didn't want the nuclear weapons. Concern over nuclear weapons faded after the fall of the Soviet Union, and most of these signs eventually came down by the city's hand. They were never, they were never vandalized. They were never, I never remember anything where people were like, you know, oh, that's stupid or that's silly. It was sort of taken seriously, like this is who we are. This is what we want our city to be. That's amazing, Square. It's, and it's funny, too, because nuclear weapons have not left the planet. There is still the threat, always, of something happening. But the fear seemed to subside when the Soviet Union disappeared. Yeah, and some of those ghosts have been stirred up again with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, mm -hmm. I think, for a lot of people of that era. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Thanks for doing that story, Squire. That was great. And we'll see you back here tomorrow night. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.